Tuesday Night Mystery Club. Hello and welcome to the Tuesday Night Mystery Club, a show where I tell guests a mystery story and they try and guess the solution. I'm your host, Caitlin McCluskey, and today I am joined for the third time by my good friend, Nikki Crawford. Hi, Nikki. Hi. How's it going? It's going, well, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, good. Today, specifically, pretty tired, but not for, any, not for any good reason. So... Nikki has some big news since last time she was yeah. on. <laughs> Third time on the show, I feel a need to redeem myself and an added pressure because I am now a licensed Ontario private investigator. <laughs> so like, I feel like there's a lot of pressure for me to get this right. And if I'm not, my license will be taken away from me. <laughs> so can you give, can you give everyone like some examples of what it means to be a PI? So I had to do... Yeah, what training you've gone through and what that, like, what you could do with it now. Right. So I had to do at least 50 plus hours of, uh, like, education before I could do the Ontario test to become an official private investigator. Mm -hmm. And the things that I learned at the education, I did it through Humber College. Um, I learned about different interrogation techniques, the ones that the police used to use, why they don't use them anymore current interrogation techniques. Mm -hmm. I learned about the different laws in Ontario and kind of the fine line that private investigators have to cross to not break certain laws. Um, I learned about like chain of custody of evidence and you have to understand the court system if you're ever asked to appear and what you'd need if you'd ever do that. Right. Uh, And then I did the Ontario test, which is a multiple choice test, I think I had to get like 77% to pass. Very and specific then, number. Very specific number. <laughs> and then once I did that, I passed. And then you apply for your license, pay a certain fee, of course, and then course. bam, you're <laughs> PI. A PI. <laughs> and so what would you say, what's like a common thing people want to get a PI license for? Um, they're used a lot in like insurance agencies. If someone's made a claim that they were mm. hurt at work or something and they, or, you know, they want to claim, they want money and then they will, the insurance company will hire a PI to go yeah. and like stake out their house and see if like that back injury that they claimed, right. it's like they're lifting bricks or something. So that's a really common one. And then another really common one is that's like, freaky. I've never thought about that before. It makes so much sense, but yeah. Yeah, and then another really common one is just like familial. Like my, I think my husband's cheating on me. Follow them and find out. Like those kind of things. Um, yeah. So, I don't know how much. Well, I didn't do any of the courses, so I have no idea. But I feel like these these books don't normally deal with deal with police investigations. No, it's very uh, unofficial. Probably not like totally legal. You know, whatever. But yeah, not. <laughs> so the last time we were on just to clear things up didn't you got pretty close I'm pretty sure on the Halloween I, episode I did get pretty close okay if not did you guess it or you were I think I had I was suspicious of the like the woman that ended up doing it but I couldn't make the jump to connect her and the gardener who was right she was in cahoots with and Charlotte later pointed out she's like they're always having an affair it's always don't <laughs> 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 there are there are those those commonalities but 
all well yeah always maybe yeah hard to piece together in the moment definitely easier for charlotte to say afterwards <laughs> charlotte we know you're listening <laughs> hi char <laughs> Um, so, so today we're doing, this is not an Agatha Christie. It's called, it's, um, Anthony Barkley, I think. Ooh. I want to, I want to pronounce his name Berkeley, but when, when Caroline Crampton came on, she, I think pronounced it Barkley. Barkley? And now I'm second guessing myself because I'm like, it's definitely British and I don't know anything and I didn't look it up. They do love pronouncing words differently than they're spelt as well. So, Well, the book will be on the, you can look it up, but the book will be on the Instagram, which is Tuesday Night Mystery Club. Um, and so you can look look at the name for yourself. Or I guess, no, I'm going to write the name in the description of this podcast. You don't need to go anywhere. But <laughs> <laughs> the book is called The Poisoned Chocolates Case. And it's the only book I have of his. Actually, Caroline Crampton also mentioned this book in the episode we did together. Okay. And it just so happened it was the only one I had. And it honestly, her talking about it made me go, oh, I really should read this book. And then did I right away? I think I did pretty soon after that. I, I read the book and it's pretty good. Okay. So he was one of the, uh, like Agatha Christie was one of the, like they call it, they call it the golden age of crime or the golden age of detective fiction or one of those types of names. Right. And there were all these crime authors writing in like the 20s and 30s. And Anthony Berkeley or Berkeley was one of those authors. And uh, they had their, um, they had like, what was it called? I think the Detection Club was what it was called. And Very it was a bunch of, named. Yeah, it was a bunch of these authors together and they like met, I don't know, let's say once a month. I'm going to make this all up. I've definitely read the Wikipedia page, but I can't remember. <laughs> and they, they like, um, they wrote some short, they wrote some I think it's called an anthology. Yeah, that sounds right. Anthology where it's a bunch that each wrote a chapter to get to the end of the detective novel. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I've it's the one that I want to read is called The Floating Admiral. Ooh. And I keep hoping to find it in a used bookstore, but I might have to just order it online. Uh, one of these days. Because <laughs> I feel like it's rare. I don't know. But that's enough intro to this book. Should we get started, Nikki? Sounds good. Poison chocolates. Yes. So, the this is the poison chocolates case. It was written in 1929. So the book starts out with our main character, Roger Sheringham. And he's sitting at the head of a table at one of his crimes circle meetings. So they have this club where they meet, uh, I think, once a week to discuss criminology, crimes that have gone on, uh, interesting crimes from the past, that kind of thing. And Roger is the founder of this club. And he's very excited because this week he's been able to secure a very special guest, Chief Inspector Morrisby of Scotland Yard. So Roger announces to the group that he thinks that they should put their interests to practical use and they should try to solve a real life murder case, the murder of Mrs. Graham Bendix. As you do. So uh, Graham Bendix would have been her husband's name. Uh, Her real name, we will get to shortly, I'm sure. It's in my notes, but maybe it's not. We'll call her Mrs. Bendix. That's easier. Okay. So, so basically they're saying, or Roger saying, the police have given up on this murder investigation. So it's our turn. And they have Morrisby here to kind of like give them the facts. Right. So 
The members of the crime circle are as follows. We have first Sir Charles Wildman, who is a super famous defense defense attorney. Uh, And he's very well spoken. And he's one of like, you know, those classic defense attorneys who's able to spin so many circles around the opposing lawyer and prove that his case is right, even if you would have got him thinking the other way around. Right. Then we have Alicia, Alicia, A-L-I-C-I-A, Alicia? Alicia. Alicia Dammers. And she is, she writes, I'm going to call her a feminist. Okay. It's 1929. What would she be? Is it still suffragette, suffragette era? She's a, she's an independent, badass woman. who writes books that are kind of more about like psychology like that that kind of that type of book so she's a she's a um literary person then we have mrs fielder fleming and she's a i'm gonna say she's a little bit she's like a more middle-aged woman let's say miss alicia damers is maybe a little younger um, and Mrs. Fielder Fleming is a playwright. She writes pretty famous plays. So again, a pretty a literary person. And I think she does, I want to say she does like crime fiction. Okay. Books or, or plays. And Alicia Dammers might, might also write about like criminology, but from like the psychological perspective. Gotcha. Then we have Mr. Ambrose Chitterwick. Chitterwick. And they basically describe chitterwick as like no one knows how he got into the circle he's just kind of there <laughs> but like, clearly you had to be voted in so clearly they had wanted him but like he's we don't really know anything much about him he's just kind of like he's a mystery within a mystery circle yeah honestly but he's also just like i don't know he gets described as like boring so no one's too impressed by him <laughs> no one but knows because no one cares <laughs> yeah honestly but he might also like you might get the impression that maybe he flies under the radar but not really. Like throughout the book, every time they describe him, it's like he's like, I know they kind of describe him as a little stupid, like <laughs> a little bit. But we'll see. And then I uh, finally there's Mr. Morton Hergate Bradley, and he has so many names. I think they're all made up because um, he's not a gentleman, but he really wishes he was because like he wasn't born into that society. Gotcha. And so he's super jealous of all the people that are. So he gave himself a bunch like different names to like sound more important than he is and he's he's a crime fiction writer so he does the fiction detective stories i just wrote wannabe in brackets beside his name i hope you know okay (laughs) so that's the cast oh and then roger of course roger sharingham who's the head of the founder he's he's a gentleman so bradley's jealous of him and he's kind of like i get the impression that the author Anthony Barkley has written about Roger before. And so maybe if I had read previous books, I would be like, oh yeah. And then there's Roger. Okay. There's history or something. Yeah. You get that feeling. So um, anyone listening at home, if you've read any of these books, please let me know. Cause I'm not going to Google it. Just, <laughs> I, I would prefer that you wrote into the Gmail and told me, which is um, Tuesday night mystery club at gmail.com. Get that Gmail plug in. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so he, I'm just trying to think like a good way to describe him. I feel like he just doesn't get as described as well as the other characters. Cause you're like almost supposed to know what he's done, but it's like, people are impressed by him. Like he's, I don't know what he's done, but 
he's well known in the public eye for like solving crimes, I think. Okay. His reputation precedes him. Yeah, so maybe he's like he's like a private investigator, but not really. I think he's more of like a amateur detective. I feel like those are two different things. He's a private private investigator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it is the same thing. I will say like tiny tangent it was very there's like some rules and regulations when you become a pi and one of them they're very specific where i am not allowed in any circumstance to call myself a detective a private detective like i cannot use that language at all right so i always think it's pretty interesting when other stories like use it but if i'm not a pi can i call myself an amateur detective because i don't have that license I don't know. I feel like it's frowned upon because they think that people associate detectives with police and they think you have like an official capacity. So I feel like you would kind of get a slap on the wrist if they found yourself, you calling yourself even an amateur detective. That's, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess what I'm thinking is I wonder what the legality is. Like, could I get in trouble with the law for calling myself an amateur detective or is it just frowned upon? You might get in trouble. Like it might be like false representation or something. So. Right. Okay. Okay. What if I'm an ex-cop? Ooh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Probably still not legal. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm just being a annoying. What's it called? <laughs> being, I'm being a shit. <laughs> I have to cut that out. <laughs> um, okay. So they all agree to listen to the facts, and then they're going to take a week to each give themselves a chance to solve the mystery. And then the following week, every evening, one person will tell, like, their theory of who it is. Okay, pretty drawn out. Yeah. So, and so just to give you an idea that, like, this is the whole story is them telling their theories. We're going to go through them one by one. And I'm thinking at the end of each person's theory, I'll let, like, I'll give you a chance to, like, kind of, like, talk about how you're feeling after it. Does that make sense? Yes. So the story begins um, with Mr. Bendix had arrived at the Rainbow Club. So back in this time, I think it was more common for men to be part of gentlemen's clubs. Like you had your club and that's where you like, you went to smoke and drink and play pool and be with other gentlemen. Right. Type thing. And I'm sure that still exists, but now it's disguised as like the golf club, you know? Yes. But it's really just high society. I don't know. I don't want to call it high society. That's, it makes it sound nice. I feel like this isn't nice. I'm I'm spending too much time on this. Moving on. The Rainbow Club. And um he had received his letters. So I guess you would get your you could get yourself mailed to your club. Mm-hmm. And so he was opening his he was sitting by the fire near the front desk opening his letters when shortly after him at 10:30 Sir Eustace Pennefather had arrived and he'd also gotten his letters as well as a package. And so one of the packages that Sir Eustace opened up was a box of chocolates from the f- famous, I'm going to call it chocolate brand, Masons and Sons. Okay. And the letter inside the box basically said, like, here's a complimentary chocolate box because they wanted a review for their, like, new brand of liquor chocolates. Okay. Right. So that, um, Sir Eustace got, like, all pissed about it, like, how dare they send me this chocolate? It's like, who do they think I am? I'm not going to write a review. Like, I'm not just some, you know, ordinary person who writes reviews for people. Right, I can't blah, be blah, bought blah. that easily. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's pretty upset about it. Uh, and 
Ben Nix is kind of just sitting there like, whatever. I think Sir, that like they try and make the point that Sir Eustace was known to be like super boisterous and like maybe a little loud and annoying. Um, and I don't know. I think I'll get into this later, but I'm going to mention it quickly now. And then if I don't get into it later, remind me because it meant, means I forgot to write it down. Uh, Sir Eustace was like a total ladies man. Like he's described as... I don't know, like, they keep describing him as, like, red-faced, I feel like, and he doesn't, and, like, he doesn't sound very pretty or, like, nice-looking, but apparently women love him. Maybe it's, like, his confidence. I don't know. There's something about him that people are attracted to. Isn't red-faced, like, kind of a tongue-in-cheek way to say, like, alcoholic? Yeah, I think you could also call him alcoholic, yeah. Okay, okay. Right? Like, he just, he seems like he has a lot of bad habits. And, like, he's known, like, around the country, basically, as being, like, an adulteress. Could you, no, as an adulterer? Yeah, ad- yes. So, I don't know. But people are attracted to him. And so, as they're, as he's kind of, like, complaining about the chocolates, it reminds Mr. Bendix that he owes his wife a box of chocolates because she had won a bet the night before. They had been at a play. And she had bet him that she she could guess the villain in the play and she had so she had won the box of chocolates that's cute i like that (laughs) so sir eustace like well i don't want him do you want him and unfortunately for bendix he accepts the box of chocolates gotcha so bendix heads home around 12 30 and mrs bendix wasn't supposed to be home that afternoon she was supposed to have a lunch appointment but it ended up getting canceled so she was also home for lunch that day So they ended up trying the chocolates together and she wasn't super impressed because she kind of felt like all of the chocolates, nothing seemed new about any of them. Like they all seemed like the same brand of chocolates. The liquor was just like super strong, like burn your tongue strong, you know, like, like almost hurts. Like you you don't want to eat more, but she, she kind of says that she's like, I don't want to eat more, but there's something about them. Like I do want to eat more. (laughs) They're addicting. And so she has a bunch and she makes Mr. Bendix eat a couple, even though he doesn't like chocolate. He agrees with her that they're super strong. Um, And they tasted like bitter almonds, all of them, even though they were labeled as like different liquors. They all tasted like Mary. That's a (laughs) no-no. Yeah. (laughs) I forget what what flavor they tasted like, but like what alcohol or liquor flavor is bitter almonds? Maraschino maybe? Or is that? Yeah, it might be it. I just know that like, isn't almonds also like, like a poison always take anyway whatever maybe maybe (laughs) am i getting ahead of you (laughs) we'll get there soon enough (laughs) um so so ben nix had then gone out to keep an appointment that he had that afternoon and he had gone back to the rainbow club after his appointment super ill like pale and sweaty and like can't move very well and like almost passing out and he's kind of going like he's doing the typical man thing of like I'm fine, everything's fine, <laughs> like I don't need anything, I just need to sit down. And then he starts convulsing. Oh god. And like seizuring or whatever. Uh and so of course they call a doctor. And so at this at this point it's noted that at the Bendix home, the same symptoms are occurring to Mrs. Bendix, but when the doctor had arrived for her, she was past help and she had died. Right. Gotcha. Right. So Mr. Bendix does survive because he had only eaten two of the chocolates to his wife's seven. Oh, God. She had had a bunch. And so the police are called in. 
because they're seeing there's definitely suspicious activity going on. So sure enough, the chocolates were poisoned with nitrobenzene. And so I was thinking, I think cyanide is supposed to taste like almonds. Yeah, something like that. So it's not cyanide, it's nitrobenzene. And this is, I think, important okay. in how easy it is to obtain because nitrobenzene is used in cheap chocolates for almond flavoring. Oh. So like it's kind of a poison, but it's also this thing like used in food. Gotcha. So the only the top level of the chocolates had been poisoned and how it was done was a little hole was drilled in the bottom of the chocolates. The filling was extracted out of it exactly six minims minims whatever some some small measurement of poison was inserted back in with the mixture of liquor filling and not that this isn't important but just you know fyi the poisoner had mixed all of the fillings together so they all had tasted exactly the same oh okay so uh, luckily, the covering letter and the paper from the parcel, the package, had not been thrown away, It's which was odd because normally they would be thrown in the fire. That's what people did back then. But they had been, I think, left on the table and the, not receptionist, but that whoever had been at the front door, like who had been working there, had picked them up and thrown them in the waste paper, waste paper basket. It's because the police were called in so shortly. I think... I, they didn't know it was a murder investigation at that moment, but a constable had saved the paper and letter, luckily. Gotcha. So they had taken them to interview Masons and Sons to like ask them about this promotional line of chocolates. And Mason, Mr. Mason, in fact, had said that there was no new line of chocolates, that they never send samples to individuals. And that note paper was at least six months old that they had had new note paper now and they hadn't used that note paper in six months. Gasp. Okay. Yeah. So getting suspicious. They also know that the postmark was from 9.30 p.m. the day before at Southampton Street, the Strand Post Office, because it would have been stamped from where it was dropped off. And that post is picked up at 8.30 and 9.30. So it has to have been dropped off within that hour for it to be picked up the 930 post. Okay. Um, they also find that all Sir Eustace's money went to his wife, who was currently out of the country. She's in Paris. So the police right now are thinking it's, um, they call them a lunatic. Like just a random person who was, has no connection to Sir Eustace, but was out to get him for some reason, for a re- basically reason unknown, because they're finding the main money, sorry, main money, haha, the main motive was money, and the wife inherited all the money, and the wife is out of the country. Right. Okay. So that's what we're dealing with right now. Let me, I'm going to read, I'm going to do a little bit more, and then I'm going to ask for how you're feeling about this case. Before yeah. so This is before we get to the first person's guess. So Inspector Morrisby leaves and the group all agree that once they leave that night, they will not share any facts with each other. So they all need to get it out now. So if anyone knows anything about the case at this moment, they need to share it because they all need to start from the same platform. Right. But then past past tonight, this next week, they will not share information. No more collaborations. Spill exactly. the beans. Yeah, basically. It's like this is hardcore competition. A lot of people's reputations are on the line. Mine included. (laughs) Not Mr. Chitterworks. He's the only person that 
Seems to have nothing on the line. (laughs) So first, Roger remembers that Alicia Dammers had been wooed unsuccessfully by Sir Eustace and that she had written a book about him. So, okay. So let me, that was the summary. This is what happened. So, so Sir Eustace would like jump from mistress to mistress, right? And there had been a period of about like almost a year, maybe it was six months, like some long period of time where the public had seen Sir Eustace trying to like get Alicia, get Miss Dammers and like get with her and whatever, whatever. And he, she just, he just kept being like turned down by her. Um, it felt like, but she was also like stringing him along. Like she was keeping him in tow, just like not letting it get to the end. To, right. Like, right. And at the end of that year, she had published a book like t- entitled something ridiculous. Oh, here is what it was called. Flesh and the Devil. Oh, geez. Tell me how and you really was, feel, Alicia. Right. Right. So it was basically just like, you know, talking trash about Sir Eustace after being able to like study him at close quarters for this whole year. I love that. So they put they point that out. Um, and then so she says she brings it up herself of like, yeah, this is this was the book that I wrote. And then she says that she's sure Sir Charles has the same opinion as her about Sir Eustace. And so then we're like, okay. oh, okay, Sir Charles, what's up with that? And so it turns out that there was a possibility of engagement between Sir Eustace and Sir Charles' only daughter. Oh god, okay. Miss Wil- Wildman is her name. Sir Charles was obviously none too pleased about that. So we will, just a tidbit that's going to come up in the future. Shocker. Okay. Star. <laughs> so Sir Charles then brings up that he knows that Sir Eustace and Mrs. Bendix had met before because he had introduced them at like a party. So even if they didn't know each other that well, they had met before. And... um. Obviously, Sir Eustace and Mr. Bendix were the same club, so they were connected. And that seems to be all the information. So then they decide on the order in which they're going to present the following week. So um, Sir Charles will go first, then Mrs. Fielder Fleming, then Mr. Morton. Well, actually, I'll just call him by what I'm going to call him. Um, Mrs. Fielder Fleming, Mr. Bradley, Roger Sheringham, Miss Dammers, and Mr. Chitterwick. That's your okay. So we'll go through them. And so when Roger gets back to his rooms, he finds Morrisby is waiting for him there, Inspector Morrisby. Mm-hmm. And he basically hints that the police couldn't get close to the personal side of the problem. They couldn't really get to Sir Eustace without, like, because at this time it was, like, all about being delicate and, like, you couldn't, like, really. Couldn't ask invasive personal questions. Yeah, especially if, like, the gentlefolk. So he's basically, he's hinting that he thinks that's where Roger should start his investigation because the police weren't able to tackle that at all. So they have no insight. Right. Okay. So those are the facts before they start presenting the next week. Tell me your thoughts. What are you thinking? Anything that comes to mind? Well, I mean, it's always in these type of things I find the person who, in this case, I think was the intended target, has the, the most, like hatred (laughs) like there's people there's motive for everyone around them to want them harm or like whatever so I definitely think that Sir Eustace was the intended target of this chocolate it was sent directly to him and it was just happenstance that it got to the Bendix couple right yeah um and and as you say knowing that he was a like a ladies man and an adulterer like that's 
there's an endless list of people who he's clearly upset, pissed off, you know, so on and so forth. You want to know a bit more about that. Yeah. So clearly we're going to have to find out about, you know, the women who, you know, hell hath no fury, like a woman scorned. (laughs) So we'll have to hear about some of his ladies. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Okay, so that's where your head's at right now. That's where my head's at. Sounds good. Okay. So the next week, it's Sir Charles' turn to kind of take up the position of speaker. And he's known as, you know, this extremely capable lawyer that's, like, so good at, like, twisting facts. And so everyone's kind of, like, expecting that to happen. So he, Sir Charles, believes that the direction to follow is I think he calls it qui, oh God, it's Latin. So I have no, no one knows how to pronounce it. I'm not going to be wrong. Qui, qui, qui bono, qui bono. Okay. Is that even Latin? Maybe it's Greek. Oh God. Qui, C-U-I, <laughs> C-U-I, B-O-N-O. I, I'm not the Latin person either, so I don't okay. know. Okay. Well, anyways, he, I don't know. I didn't need to tell you this. All it means <laughs> is who gains, who gains Nikki. Right. Uh, from Sir Eustace's death. So that was that was his like intention of who he was going to follow along with. And so he has thought that um, companies like Mason and Sons might send a piece of notepaper as a thank you to customers who order from them. So that's where he started his investigations. And so he investigates his suspects. Sorry, I just wrote he investigates, period. He <laughs> looks into stuff. Thanks, Caitlin. It's <laughs> shocking. Okay. So all of them, each person, they never tell you, they don't want to tell you, like, right from the get-go who their suspect is. Like, they want to keep it a secret. But, like, you can guess a lot of the time. You know who they're talking about. Even though they don't want to say it. And the the whole circle knows. Like, they're all like, we know who you're talking about. No one wants to say the name. So his suspect did have an account with Mason and Sons. um, And he confirmed that Mason and Sons does send notepaper as a thank you. Okay. And so the note paper from the chocolate box, he'd gone to see it, see it at the police station and he'd found that it did have traces of a sentence in the middle of the page being erased and then typed over. Ooh. So he's like, okay, so I'm pretty sure that's how the paper was acquired. It's from this thank you note. And so Sir Charles proposes that the suspect wanted to seem like they were out of the country at the time. Okay, so he thinks it's his wife, Sir Eustace's wife. Is his he suspect. thinks it's Sir Eustace's wife. And so, but really they weren't, and they were able to post the parcel, and he's saying it's Lady Penafather. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. So, so next, Sir Charles goes into, okay, but she has this alibi. What if he were able to destroy her alibi, though? Let's hear Do it, lawyer boy. Them? Yeah. So he goes on to say that he knows for a fact, he, she was... I said she was in Paris. Oh, I've already given it away. But here's what happened. Yes, you did already say that she was in Paris. Well, no, no, no. They knew she was out of the country, but everyone thought she was in Spain. Ooh. And so what has happened is he's proven that it was actually the maid that was in Spain. So they were in like, they were in like one part of Spain or France. Who cares? It doesn't matter what country. Somewhere Somewhere in Europe, it's like really nice and pretty and beautiful. Uh, And... They were at like one hotel and then apparently just Lady Penafather had gone to a second hotel and the maid had stayed behind, but he proves that no one had stayed behind. It was actually the maid that had gone to the secondary hotel and that Miss Lady Penafather did not. She went somewhere else. Okay. Right. 
And so that he says that he thinks she had gone back to England. She had had to go back to England for some reason. He's not sure what. Do we but, know how he proves this? Like how, how he. Yeah. He goes to the hotel and shows them a picture of the maid. And they're like, yeah, she stayed with us. That's Lady Penifather. And he's like, no, no, that's the maid. He goes to a hotel in Spain or like he leaves the country. Yeah. to Yeah. Wow. Dedic- okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so he's suggesting that for tax reasons, Lady Penafather couldn't leave the country, couldn't go back to England, because then she'd have to, like, pay all these taxes, but she needed to go back to England. So that's, he's proposing this, this is what the maid tells him, is what Lady Penafather told her. Um, and so the maid had also been given a bribe to, uh, to do this for Lady Penafather, and presumably was given a bribe, bribe by Sir Charles to then tell him the information. I assume. Um, so... They, at this point, it's time to start poking holes in the alibi. Oh, wait, actually, wait, wait, wait. First, the other reason was, why now? Like, why kill yeah. her husband, husband now? Yeah. So they are wanting to get a divorce, the Penafathers. Okay. And she had it, like, written down that she would still be included in the will or something. But... As you remember, Sir Eustace was trying to get engaged to Miss Wildman. Right. And if he got married again, that agreement that she's still in the will would be like null and void. Null and void. So he is saying she wanted to kill him before he could get married again so she could get all the money. Right. Okay. So there's that. So then it's time to start poking holes in his theory. Because, of course, theory number one definitely can't be right. Obviously. Too boring. So Miss Dammer starts um, and Mr. Bradley also thinks that there's too much weight attached to the paper. Like, they're kind of saying your entire case rests on the fact that um, Lady Penafather was a customer of Mason's and Sons, but there's probably so many other ways to get this paper, and um, anyone could be a customer. Like, really, how can you attach so much weight to this? Yeah. And then they say, you've proved motive and opportunity, but you have no real facts. Like, you have literally nothing tying her to this. So, like, how are we supposed to believe you on that? And then Miss Dammers has one more piece of like damning evidence against this case, and that's that she was with Lady Penafather at the time the parcel was mailed in Paris. Gasp! And so they're like, okay, but why all the secrecy with her maid and stuff? And uh, Miss Dammers is basically like, well, you know, Sir Eustace is like has all these mistresses. Would you be so shocked to know that Lady Penafather also is seeing a man on the side? Seeing people on the side. Okay. And, and doesn't want anyone to know about it. Okay. So that's apparently what's going on in Paris. Gotcha. Okay. So Lady Penafather for now. I love the picture. So how are you feeling about that? I mean, feeling pretty good. I mean, Sir Eustace's wife now has a pretty rock solid alibi. Mm-hmm. Right, if she's with another member of, like, the circle. Right. And I definitely agree that the note paper, the, like, thank you, you could literally get it from anyone. So many people, I'm sure, order chocolate. And even if the person doesn't, even if they know someone who does, you just swipe the paper. Like, Right. It's yeah. not it's not hard evidence, It's right? not enough to put a whole case on. Right. Nikki as a PI would never do that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Need more than just conjecture, buddy. <laughs> okay. So the next day, it's Mrs. Fielder Fleming's turn to speak. And she, too, says that she has solved the case. Perfect. So she believes that it's a love triangle. And this is perfect. Really fits in with her character of being a playwright. 
Um, the drama. Super dramatic, yeah. <laughs> so she says that Sir Eustace had loved a girl, but someone else had loved that girl too. So she is basically insinuating that Sir Charles's daughter had another suitor and that Sir Charles was angry about it. Okay. Or that's what it like feels like at the moment. And so like you can see Sir Charles is like starting to get heated because no one's saying that it's his daughter, but we we've just discussed that Sir Eustace was like trying to like get things together with Miss Will with his daughter. So right. we see that coming along. So then Miss Fielder Fleming, she's like, you know, she's set up that this is her like thesis. Now she's gonna start giving us her evidence. So she has interviewed Sir Eustace's valet. Uh, by the way, I've learned it's not valet. If it's a person, it's a valet. Oh, I did not know that. Okay. Gabrielle told me. Um, many... She would know. She would I... know something like that. I'm going to say I made this mistake a whole year ago, and I feel like I've made it again in, in future episodes. But <laughs> I do know that it's valid. Okay. Um. So he was only, it's one of those, it's that perfect word of like, if you've never heard it said out loud. Yes. It's a perfect only... storm of French and English. Like, yeah. Yeah. So there you go. So he was only interested in Miss... Oh, sorry. From Sir Eustace's valet, she learns that Sir Eustace was only interested in Miss Wilbin for her money and had tried to seduce her before. So, like, he had no... He wasn't in love. There was no infatuation Real feelings, there. okay. No, it was purely an investment on his part. So what again, garbage. Okay. Right. So Sir Charles is not, not doing too well over here. So she has also found out from uh, Miss Wilbin's maid... She also has been bribing all these people. So, like, everyone's spending money. <laughs> Love it. She's found out from Miss Wildman's maid that Miss Wildman was really infatuated with Sir Eustace. Poor girl. So, different feelings there. So, again, Sir Charles, not thrilled. Yep. So, moving on to the paper, because she also was like, you have, to, you have to figure out how they got this paper somehow. She suspects that it was Mason's legal team from three years ago, because they definitely definitely like would have had access to the Mason's company and like been in the, been in there. They would have been using, might have been like using some note paper. They also note that the note paper that the letter was sent on was kind of yellowed around the edges. So it would make sense that it was older. The suspect was at a reunion dinner on the night of the, 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 the package was mailed and the reunion dinner was only five minutes from the mailbox. Okay, so very plausible to be able to run out, run out right. and do it. So then she asks, says that the suspect, the suspect, her suspect, was the one to refute the engagement in newspapers to say that the engagement wasn't happening, calling it off. And who is that person? Sir Charles. Sir Charles! <laughs> gotcha. So she accuses Sir Charles. She's super convinced that she's right. Sir Charles is pissed like steam coming out of his ears but he's also like this is a lady so he can't like say all the words he wants to say type right. thing and he basically turns to roger like the group leader and is like what are you going to do about this <laughs> basically and roger says well defend yourself right. basically like tell us why why you're wrong so sir charles is like given this chance to speak and he basically has nothing to say. Like, he's so upset that he just says that, like, well, none of this is, like, evidence against him. That's all he right. says. Right. And so we're kind of looking at it going, like, all right. And so <laughs> I, I think, I don't think anyone tries to disprove her necessarily because they're kind of, I think they all like to see 
Sir Charles kind of like sit in this feeling Squirm. of basically like what he does to his clients and stuff. Or not his clients, but the opposing. Right. Um, so none of them want to try and defend him at all. So they just let him like sit in that. But they all agree that they won't go to the police right away with this uh, with this case. They'll let everyone else present first. So. Right. So that's pretty fun. Okay. So that was that was um, Miss... Mrs. Fielder Fleming's story. What do you think? I think motive is strong in this one because it does make sense that Charles mm. would want to get Eustace away from his daughter, knowing that he doesn't care for her, but that she's now potentially infatuated with him, doesn't want right. her to get hurt. But again, almost this whole case hinges on the paper. Again, like this is another theory that's like, right. well, the legal team had access to the paper. Yes, seemingly everyone had access to the paper. So I don't right. think that's enough to tie him into actually like the poison and and going through with it and doing it right so it is good motive but i'm not sure if that's enough more yeah Yeah. okay that's fair okay so the next day roger is back in morrisby inspector morrisby's office and he's basically trying to pump him for more information like he's like there's must be more to this case that you're not telling us but like kind of to no avail um so he's going around like after that he just like goes around feeling sorry for himself because like he doesn't really know what to do and it's like coming up on his turn I think it's like Bradley goes and then it's him like he's got basically two days left to go right and suddenly he's accosted by a woman called Mrs. Vericker Le Mazur Le Vericker Le Mazurer okay whatever (laughs) no one else has a name sounding like that so you'll know who I'm talking about definitely so so she's super upset by Mrs. Bendick's death and she basically speaks of the irony uh, and basically says well Mrs. Bendick's brought it upon herself wow talk about victim blaming okay right so so Roger's like uh okay how so and she goes, well, her and I had seen the play together beforehand. So she already knew who the villain was. So she had made that bet knowing who the villain was. Oh, so she like kind of duped her husband for that box of ch- in the bet. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And so kind of saying like karma, karma got her in a real bad way. <laughs> she did one little white lie. So she yeah. deserved to die. Actually, so this is a good point. I didn't talk about, like, the Bendixes at all. So part of this is that Mrs. Bendix was painted to be, like, this super, like, goody-two-shoes, like, spiritual woman who's, like, very proper and always talking about, like, playing the game and playing fairly and, like, has a, like, super high, like, moral compass and, like, that kind of personality. Super righteous. Okay. So this is a different side of her. So this is kind of... No one would expect that she would do this. Right. But... like, also, I feel like we know that everyone's like that. No one's perfect. <laughs> no one's really like that. Okay, well, maybe. But anyway, also she's not. so harmless. Like, it's like you're True. winning a bet from your husband to For get a box, a box of, chocolates. of chocolates that you yeah. share with him. Like, yeah. It's... No, totally. It doesn't matter at all. So that's, that's Mrs. Bendix's character. And then they also, they kind of talk about, so... I talk about Mr. Bendix's character. So he was 
he's just an, I feel like he's just an average dude who's pretty rich. His dad had like made a lot of money that he had then inherited and then he had like continued to like invest and made more money. And then Mrs. Bendix had also come from money. So she had all her own money. And so they're just like kind of a pretty rich, well-off couple. Okay. So to to Roger, this like blows the case open for him. Like this changes everything for him on what's going on and so he then heads to the rainbow club where he is meeting an acquaintance of his and he catches a glimpse of mr bendix who looks super haggard and just like he's aged so much in the last few days from all of this stress stress yeah So it's now Mr. Bradley's turn to speak. It's the next evening. And he is most interested in the use of nitrobenzene, the poison. So like that's the first thing that he's drawing importance to. And he's kind of saying that it's, it actually is pretty easy to make and do secretly. And the person probably needed to have at least a little chemical knowledge or chemistry knowledge. And so he's kind of pointing to like, it really wouldn't take too much. Like if you were a chemist's like pharmacy assistant. Hey, Nikki, you've been a pharmacy assistant. I have been a pharmacy <laughs> assistant. Am I being, am I a suspect? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he's kind of saying like that or like a nurse or even, even just like if you liked to read up on chemistry stuff or like we're going, going through those kind of books, like you could know about this. It wouldn't you take pick up much. on it. Right. Yeah. And he's also kind of talking to like, it's kind of easy to acquire again, because it's technically a poison, but it's also used in all these other things throughout, like it's used in chocolate, like it's used in food as almond flavoring in smaller doses, right? Um, in perfume and things like that. So he's saying he doesn't think it'd take too much knowledge, but it would, it, he would require a little bit, you would have to be kind of smart. And then he had remembered that his sister had been a temp at Mason three to four years ago. So he got over to her house and asked her about it. And she'd been like, yeah, of course I have notepaper for Masons. And she pulls out a stack of it from her cupboard that they used all the time to play games, like paper games on. Right. Right. So like, um, so Bradley himself had like used this paper before and that's why it like felt familiar to him. So then he gets, um, he gets from the police that the type of the typewriter had been like a number four or something. And he also finds out what the fountain pen had been and uh, the the ink, or sorry, the ink used and the fountain pen used. He gets like the nibs required and everything like that. And he kind of points out that like, they're pretty common. Like he, he owns all of, he owns that kind of typewriter and that kind of pen and that kind of ink. Is he accidentally incriminating himself? <laughs> this whole thing? We'll see. <laughs> My sister has access to all this paper and it's super easy to get your hands on the poison. And also look at these common typewriter nibs. I have them. <laughs> Maybe. Okay. So uh, Mr. Bradley then says that he was actually near the post box at the allotted time. <laughs> He's committing himself. He's kind of saying like, I could have seen the murderer at that time. Like maybe I did. He then um, thinks, he thinks that they, the person can't possibly be a gentleman because a gentleman would never commit this kind of murderer. Uh, Bradley's not a gentleman. And um, the person would uh, obviously have to be very dexterous and painstakingly neat, like very nimble fingers to be able to 
change out the chocolates like drill that hole and insert stuff right and he had kind of wanted to prove like he was basically saying like you know we all think that women have super nimble hands and are dexterous but i proved it i tested 12 of my friends and i was the only one who was able to do it correctly (laughs) Mm -hmm. oh my god he tested it um he thinks they'd have to have a creative mind uh and so then in fact bradley had actually come up with a list of 12 conditions so i think this is the type of thing where if I remember, which I never do, I'll post a picture on Instagram. I, again, if you want to see this, message me on Instagram and say, Caitlin, where's that picture? And then I'll send it to you. But I'm also going to read them out right now. <laughs> so conditions to be filled by the criminal. One, must have at least an elementary amount of no- chemical knowledge. Two, must have at least an elementary knowledge of criminology. Three, must have had a reasonably good education, but not public school or university. So for North Americans, public school means private school. Right. What's a better way of describing that? Public school means you paid good money to go to that school and you had a fancy education. Right. Private institution. Yes. Four, the person must have possession of or access to Mason's notepaper. Five person must have possession of or access to a Hamilton number four typewriter. Six, they must have been in the neighborhood of Southampton Street Strand during the critical hour, 8.30 to 9.30 on the evening before the murder. Seven, must be in possession of or had access to an onyx fountain pen fitted with a medium broad nib. This is a lot of detailed information, but I'm going to go through it anyways. Eight, must be in possession of or had access to Herfield's fountain pen ink. Nine, must have something of a creative mind, but not above adapting the creations of others. Ten, must be more than ordinarily neat with the fingers. Eleven, must be a person of methodical habits, probably with a strong feeling of symmetry. And twelve, must have the cold inhumanity of the poisoner. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. So, from there, Bradley has listed off all of his twelve points, he then all goes on to neatly show how he, in fact, fits all of them and <laughs> that the probability that anyone meets all of these conditions is like tens of millions to one. And so therefore he must be the murderer. He actually accuses himself. Yeah, he accuses himself. This is this is this is classic Bradley behavior. I don't even know what to <laughs> respond to this. Neither does anyone else, Nikki. Everyone just sits there staring at him going like, wait. Is he you're, really accusing himself? You're confessing. <laughs> so let's let's keep going because I can't remember. I, I I wrote took notes on this book in like parts. Okay. And some of them like a month ago. So I'm really <laughs> <laughs> pulling on my memory to remember what happened. Okay. So after that uh, excitement dies down, Bradley says he actually knows who it is. It's not really him. Okay, that was just a fake out. That was just a fake out of, like, his personality of, like, wanting to, like, be dramatic and, like, I don't know. He wanted to accuse himself because, like, he wanted to make other people uncomfortable, probably. That's pretty intense, like, attention-seeking behavior. Yes. To confess to a murder you didn't commit just to, like, you know. Yeah. Shake things up. Uh, Also, it's like, you know, he really wanted spotlight for, like, extra time because now he's going to, like, give his, like, real guess. His real theory. So he thinks that he actually does know who did it. It's not him. He was just, I think he was like also trying to show that like 
like he gave all these he gave these 12 conditions but you could kind of make it seem to be anyone if you really tried without right. number of conditions so then he says he's actually sure that it's a woman so kind of going against some of his suggestions and he thinks that the motive was jealousy and that it's one of sir eustace's discarded lovers Okay. So then he goes to make his point that he had found out that Sir Eustace was supposed to have a lunch date on the day that he had received the chocolates and that he thinks that chocolates are normally for a woman. So he's kind of saying he thinks that the chocolates were sent to Sir Eustace and he was supposed to bring them to his lunch date and they were supposed to be for that woman. Unintentional. Oh, gotcha. So he's seen inside this woman's house. He, uh, he went there, uh, he had a fake out of why he was supposed to be there. And he knows that she has the right books. So this was like a point that he was trying to make of like, you'd have to own, it's called uh, Taylor's book, which like talks about like a bunch of poisons. Okay. And it has nitrobenzene listed in it. And there's also like a criminology book that like lists a bunch of these murder cases. And so he's saying this woman owns both of these books. She has the right pen. She has the right ink. And in the end, it ends up being, he doesn't say this out loud. He writes a name down and like shows it to Roger. And it's Mrs. Vericker Lemuzer. Right. Mazurer. And so we get, we have to talk a little bit more about her. So apparently, again, this is one of the things where I'm, I feel like this woman has come back up in a previous book. Oh, okay. You know, like she's a re- repeating character. I don't know that because I haven't read any of the other books or done any Googling. But... <laughs> it, I it's just, just a feeling it's just a feeling because if Roger's a repeating character apparently Mrs. Vericker Lemuser like isn't like inf- like loves him like in the sense of like she thinks he's so fantastic and he's so smart and the reason she is into criminology is because of Roger she's trying she, like, to like impress him yeah yeah so so Roger basically tells Bradley that he's sure it's not her because just like he's like, I know why she has all these things, and it has nothing to do with this murder. She's just like, she's really, my fan. Yeah. yeah, she's crazy about me. Um, and then the other thing to note is that no one had any idea that she was one of these, one of Sir Eustace's mistresses. So I forget. Let's just take that as fact because I don't have it written down how Bradley proved that. Okay. Uh, but. It, it was the main point was to show that no one else knew about this mistress. And so that's pretty abnormal because normally the public like knew about all the mistresses. Like Sir Eustace didn't hide it very well. Right. So this was just going to show that he is capable of hiding them. So there is very good possibility there's more. Gotcha. Okay. So that was Bradley's kind of double guess. What did you make of make of that? I thought it was hilarious that he <laughs> incriminated himself kind of through it. Um Again, he's he approached it interestingly by going to the poison instead of by the paper, which everyone else seemed to be right. focusing on. He a strong point of that of that's where he thought you had to focus on the poison. I almost thought he was going to accidentally incriminate his sister in doing this, mm. actually, because he's like, it needs to be all these things, but it also needs to be a woman. And it's like, oh, you mean your sister who used to work for Mason and like has access to all this stuff. It's very interesting you bring that up because I didn't provide any information about that. The rest of the circle thinks that too when he says it. Ah, uh, that's cool. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but I, I still, again, like, it's, it's pretty weak. It doesn't, you got to have a bit more motive than that, I think. Right. Okay. Or like, he says it's one of the discarded mistresses. Like, okay, but like, what happened? Why? Like, why this mistress? Why now? Right. Okay. Yeah. 
So if we take it, yeah, okay. So we'll leave it at that. So the next evening is Roger's night. So he has a lot of work to do. And again, he's he's really taking on this main character role, um, which I'm not totally sure of if it's because he shows up in other books. Right. <laughs> I'm still not going to look it up. <laughs> Email in, folks. Email yeah, please. in. I'd rather have someone else's take on this. (laughs) (laughs) So that day, Roger has a lot of work to do. So he basically takes a a taxi everywhere, which is super uncommon for him because he's like the opposite of like Bradley is trying to pretend to be a gentleman. Whereas Roger is like super big on taking buses and like doing like what the working man does and like that kind of thing. Right. But time is of the essence here. So he has to take some taxis. And so he goes first to Scotland Yard and he asks Inspector Morrisby to round up all of the cabbies in the area that had taken a fare to Piccadilly the night before, like the night of the night before the murder. Okay. From Southampton. So I think it's important to note because I'm not that familiar with this area. So Southampton's where the package was mailed. Piccadilly would be where the play was. Okay. Like, that's where the theaters are? I don't know. Actually, I'm kind of making this up now. So he he wants to round up the cabs to know who took a cab from the theater to the post office? Or, or from or both. But, Either from okay. the theater to the post office or from the post office to the theater. Or if someone took someone there and back. Okay. So he goes with that. And then he says, um, he goes out to a factory where he gets a receptionist to basically tell him that the employees, one, that that factory uses nitrobenzene and the employees are warned about the use of nitrobenzene and the dangers of it. Okay. So they know it's poison. Basically, yeah. So he gets that out of her. And then he goes to Webster's, which is a printing company that prints, like, prints paper and, like, would do, like, letterhead and stuff like that. What could make you, if you wanted, like, a sheet of paper for your, or a stack of paper, reel of paper for your company. Mm-hmm. And they have sales books out front because that's how like they'll sell you their papers. You can look through what they've done for other people and sales girls as well. And so he looks through the first two books, then he gets to the third book and he sees something in the book that makes him ask the woman if she's seen this person in this photograph. He shows her a photograph. And just to be clear, she has been agreeing with everything he said up until this point. And so she says that, yes, she has seen the person in the photograph, then sells him a reel of paper. Okay. So he then goes around to a bunch of typewriter shops all around town asking about um, a typewriter number four that had been sold to his friend about a month ago. And again, he has a picture. He shows a picture to this one man who agrees that, yes, he had sold that typewriter to to his friend and then sells him a typewriter number four. Basically, Roger feels so guilty about this that he feels like he has to buy a typewriter. Oh, wow. This person agrees. Okay. So um, by that time, he comes back. Okay, I didn't write this down, but I just have such good memory. He also goes to some (laughs) finance company and, like, finds out a bunch. He gets a bunch of information on, like, stocks and stuff. Okay. Okay, so just keep that in mind. Okay. Then he goes back to the police station. Morrisby has found 14 taxi drivers None of them recognize the photograph. So that's a dead end. Okay. Okay. So it's finally his time to talk. So everyone's gathered around the rack up at the table. It's Roger's turn to 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 speak. He's super pompous because he's like, yeah, I, I figured this one out. Like, you losers. Couldn't get it together. But I know. I know okay. what happened. Okay. So 
Roger says that he had originally thought that it was a mistress too. Like he had been following that line of track, like that track and like partly edged on by the police saying that there was like this personal aspect with Sir Eustace. But then he had changed his mind completely. And he goes on to say how obvious the solution is and they've all been blind to this and how could they possibly not see it? Very pompous. Yeah. Roger then goes on to say that through Bradley's 12 conditions, from this point on, everyone kind of like draws back to his 12 conditions and kind of like says, do do they meet them? Um, He does base, but Roger's kind of saying he doesn't agree with all of them. Like he doesn't think that they're all as important as, as Bradley has attached so much weight, which makes sense because they proved Bradley was the murderer. (laughs) Right. So, so Roger's kind of saying, I I really don't think they're that important. I think you just needed them to be for your case. And so he tells them that he's found where the typewriter was bought. He's found where the note paper was acquired from. Uh, so the typewriter, he says, he says he had showed this person the picture. And then the note paper had been in one of those sample books. Of the yeah. three sample books, did you figure? I figured it was like ripped out of the sample book and then exactly. they just walked away with it. Yeah. So two of the sample books had Mason's note paper in it and the third with this woman didn't. And she again recognized the photograph. Then he says that the trap that they had all fallen into was that the plan had miscarried. But in his opinion, the plan had gone perfectly. It had gone according to plan. The attended victim had been murdered. That's where he's going with everything. And so he says the reason he knew is because Mrs. Bendix had seen the play before. And so there was no bet. He's saying Mrs. Bendix never made that bet. The bet is an invention. It oh, never existed. That was a lie. Yeah. So you kind of see where he's going with this. Okay, so he's accusing Mr. Bendix of just yes, poisoning his wife. Yes, exactly. And now we'll get into how Mr. Bendix could have done that. Okay. So he says that there's two motives. One, Mrs. Bendix was super boring and righteous, and who could possibly want to be married to that kind of a woman? <laughs> okay. So believe it or not, gotcha. <laughs> that's reason number one. And then two, he's saying that Mr. Bendix wasn't as rich or didn't have as much money as we all thought. And he needed money pretty badly because his businesses that uh, that Rogers had looked into today, that's why he got to the business place. They were all on the rocks. The, the businesses that Bendix was on the board for weren't doing well. Okay. Um, so he had also checked and Mrs. Bendix's will is entirely in his, in Mr. Bendix's favor to the sum of 0.5 or half a million pounds. Wow. A lot of money. That's a lot of money. He also had found that Bendix owned stocks in this specific perfume company where he is ascertained that they use nitrobenzene and that everyone is made aware of its dangers. So he's kind of saying Bendix would have known this since he was on the board. He would have visited the company. They have notices up. He would be aware. So then he says he thinks that Bendix must have left the play at intermission, um, using it as kind of like a loose alibi to go mail the package. And then he had, he had made sure to arrive at the rainbow club, been sure to tell Sir Eustace about this bet so he can get the chocolates from him and then bring it back to his wife. And so this is when they start to try and disprove his theory. So do you have any, do you have any things you would want to ask him? I think it's, you're rolling the dice pretty heavily betting that you'll be there the same time that Eustace will be there to collect the chocolates to like be able to get them. 
Like, he could have just mailed them to himself and claimed that the company sent them to him as a, like, comp, free comp, like he said to Eustace. The fact that he addressed it to Eustace, or the the theory goes that he sent it to Eustace. Right. That's a pretty big gamble, because... So, this is a good point, because you didn't read the book and I didn't tell you. Um, Sir Eustace was punctual and always at the Rainbow Club at 10.30. Okay. That's important. He also, on, of Bradley's, not Bradley, of Roger's theory, the the box of chocolates he sent to Sir Eustace would not be the poisoned box of chocolates. He'd substitute them on his way home. Oh, okay. So it, it did still require that Sir Eustace gives him the box of chocolates, yeah. but he didn't, he wasn't sending poison chocolates to the wrong person. Okay, gotcha. Uh, anything else that you would ask or question? So why did, so the bet was a lie. I, I just feel like the motive is weak. Like, I know that they're like, mm-hmm. she's too, she's a boring, righteous lady, and, and he'll get lots of money. Right. I don't know. I, You're not feeling it. I mean, it, it's pretty compelling. This this one is, I think, one of the most compelling theories. Okay. But, yeah. It's not, you're not fully convinced. Not fully convinced. Okay, well, everyone at the circle is, except for Miss Dammers. And she says that she'll prove who the real murderer is tomorrow. Yeah, stay tuned, guys. Yeah, exactly. She's and got so, it. I think they they vote they like have to vote unanimously to bring this to the police, but it doesn't. It is not voted unanimously because Miss Dammers does not agree, and the meeting is adjourned. Dun dun dun. So wow. Nikki and Miss Dammers don't agree. It's kind of funny, like, I, like when I was starting to read this book, I did picture Miss Dammers as a Nikki character. Oh, I love that. Nice. I'm just like, we're also. Uh, 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 we're doing Nikki's hosting us a tea party next week. Yes, where the um, the dress up is evil villains. Yeah, theme is villains this year. And so, not, uh, I'm tying these together, but like Miss Dammers, I don't know. She just feels like one of those people that like dresses like super, um, like all in black. I don't think they say that ever. Like she's very like it's a vibe. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. It's a vibe, and that's how I'm also like picturing these evil villains yeah. of like. Uh, which, by the way, I have not thought about my costume and I need to do that this weekend. Yeah, I'm kind of panicking about my costume as well. <laughs> like, I have bits and pieces, but, like, whether it'll coherently come together in time, that's a yeah. different story. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get it together. Yeah. Okay. The next day is Miss Dammer's turn to give her solution. And she basically says, she says that, like, at the beginning, she's like, I'm before I can build up my own case, I have to crush Roger's. love it so she starts by saying that there is overwhelming evidence that the bet was made and that she has two witnesses to show that it did happen so basically i think they had shown the night before that roger's entire case rested on the bet not happening right and so the fact that the bet did happen is like already out the gate like not looking good takes the wind out of his sails yeah so he's already like looking crestfallen and then Miss Dammers asks Bendix flat out, uh, no wait, okay, oh yeah, then Miss Dammers had asked Bendix flat out why he was at the club that morning, and it turns out that he had had a call from an actress. So there was some theories that Mr. Bendix may have been cheating hanging, on the side, yeah, okay. Yeah, hanging with some other women, and uh, these actresses, I think he had been in the acting world at some point. And uh, so apparently an actress had called him and asked him to be there at this time. And so Bendix says this, uh, this woman, this actress is Miss Vera Delorme. 
But Miss Dammers, again, super to the point, had called Miss Vera Delorme and she said denied that call entirely and said she did not make that call. Okay. So showing that that Bendix was coaxed into being into being there. She also points out that just again to kind of continue to crush Bendix's case, she had gone back to Webster's and gotten the woman, the girl, the sales girl to admit that she had never seen the person in the photograph before. She was just saying it because the man wanted her to have seen that person so bad that she was willing to oblige. Oh God. Okay. That's a unproductive, the customer's always right kind of moment. Okay. And then the same thing at the typewriter, the guy was like basically saying, well, this guy clearly wanted to buy a typewriter from the same place as friend bought a typewriter and my typewriters are just as good as anyone else's. So I was more than happy to tell him his friend bought his typewriter here. So I just agreed. Yeah. And so there she's like, boom, gone evidence. So the store clerks admitted to not ever seeing Mr. Bendix and that they just said yes right. for the sales. Right. So this is perfect, right? So so then kind of what, what uh, Miss Dammers is saying is that she thinks that someone primed Mrs. Bendix to make that phone call, the Miss to pretend to be Miss Vera Delorme and get her husband to the club at the appropriate time, basically. Okay. And basically to catch her husband in this affair. Ah. So Sam had kind of like coaxed her into doing that. And so she uh, she thinks that this murderer is a second rate murderer, that they aren't too smart because all clues that can be destroyed should be destroyed. And she's insinuating that the person was able to destroy the letter and packaging from the, the chocolates, but left them intact and didn't destroy them. Okay. Can you see where this is going, Nikki? I'm I'm starting to think she's saying that Mrs. Bendix like poisoned herself. <laughs> so she's saying that there are two people based there were basically three people that had access to that letter and and parcel. The the attendant at the club, Mr. Bendix and Sir Eustace himself. Right. Uh, and she's kind of saying she knew Sir Eustace pretty well. She knows he's not that smart. She had then looked into Sir Eustace's canceled lunch plans because he was supposed to have lunch plans that day and they had been canceled. Do you know who else was supposed to have lunch plans that day and had canceled? They had been canceled? We found this out right at the beginning. Mr. Bendix? Mrs. Bendix. Oh. Oh. So she goes asking some questions around with with Sir Eustace's valet and some other people and finds out that Mrs. Bendix is the current mistress of Sir Eustace. Wow. Okay. Did not Not, see that coming. Not so righteous as we all thought. Yeah. That moral compass that everyone talked about. So they had eaten often at the same hotel and they both like arrived at totally different times. They had like a private room and the waiter had signed a declaration that he had recognized them both. He it was one waiter that served them every time they went, and he recognized both Mrs. Bendix and Sir Eustace. Basically, she's saying that Mrs. Bendix thought she was like a good enough woman to like sway Sir Eustace. This is now like we're getting into like the psychology, and this is like Miss Dammer's like strong point of right. There's this type of woman that like thinks they can like fix or like you know whatever like rehabilitate a man yeah and she's kind of saying she thinks mrs bendix was this type person of like she's so righteous and so to her she could do no wrong because she's doing it in the name of good 
to like fix this man but at a certain point it had become more of just an affair and right. she wasn't getting anywhere with him and so there, the love might have started to drain at that point but she still felt like she had to be with him because now she was doing this and so basically she was saying she was gonna have to divorce her husband and marry sir eustace was the only possible option and sir eustace of course didn't want this because he's just to him it was all this game of like trying to convince this like goody two-shoes woman to like be with him right um and so after a while when mrs bendix had caught wind of this uh, miss with the miss mrs miss wildman engagement possibility she had threatened to expose sir eustace and sir eustace had decided okay time to get rid of you that's this so this is miss dammer's entire theory so her theory is that sir eustace sent the poison chocolates knowing that bendix would give them to mrs bendix so, so yeah, so this good point. So then she kind of gets into that. She thinks originally he was just going to get the chocolates and give them to, um, to Miss, Mrs. Bendix at their like lunch date. Realized that of course that was a terrible idea, even though he had like been sent them because they would tie back to him. So instead he had convinced Mrs. Bendix to call her husband to quote unquote, see if he was having an affair. And she figures that even though Mrs. Bendix was having an affair, she'd probably still be pissed to find out that her husband was. Right. So convinces her to call him so that she, he can assure that Mr. Bendix will be there at that time. Cancels his lunch date with Mrs. Bendix. So that there's no, he can't, he's not going to be tied to her at all. He doesn't want this affair found out. Assuring that she'll be home for lunch, gives the chocolates to Mr. Bendix. He brings them on home, but a boom, but a bing murder. Dead. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty good. So so the the issue here is that she has no evidence of any of that. That's just all psychology. But she does have one piece of evidence. Because she's okay. kind of asking Sir Charles, like with this fly in court, and he's kind of going, I don't know if psychology alone is going to convince a jury. She has taken a picture of the letter, the chocolate letter of the chocolates, and compared it to a letter typed out on Sir Eustace's typewriter machine and she shows them around to the group and Roger can confirm that the chocolate letter was definitely typed on the uh, Sir Eustace's typewriter. Wow. Okay. And so this is, this is like one of those things back then of like, you could tell if um, one key like was a little uh, harder than the others right, or like the letter like slanted one way or exactly. the other. Exactly. Yeah. You, like could, you could compare them pretty apparently. I've uh, never tried to compare typewritten notes, <laughs> but that's the idea. So everyone's pretty excited about this, that Miss Dammers has found the official solution. And they all agree to give the evidence to the police, except for Mr. Chitterbrook, <laughs> who wants to talk tomorrow because he feels he has his own theory. And Mr. Chitterbrook has been pretty quiet this whole time, kind of just agreeing with everyone else. And so the group is... The, the group is reasonably upset that uh, he's going to waste 24 hours on them for right. them to not just like, give Miss Dammer's solution. To the causing police. another stalemate. Basically, they're kind of like, they're basically like, there's no way you have anything better to say. <laughs> just, but they're not saying that. They're all just looking at him. And they kind of go, okay, fine. You can, yes, you can have your chance to speak. Fine, fine, whatever. Right. Okay. So how are you feeling now with Miss Dammer's? I think it's a pretty good theory. Um, I mean, knowing that the letter was written on Sir Eustace's typewriter is a useful piece of information 
just in general, like, mm-hmm. you know, applying it to this theory or, or otherwise, knowing that it came from him is pretty, pretty key. I don't know. I'm interested to see what he has to say to try and disprove this or like what his take on it is. Right. I, I should go through for, for the, the Sir Eustace, uh, Miss Dammers, when she was talking to Sir Eustace's valet, was able to see that Sir Eustace had the Taylor book and the criminology book that they were saying was so important. Uh, he had the pen, he had the ink, uh, the, obviously the typewriter where she had she had the letter for. Right, but but wasn't weren't he was trying to woo her at one point, wasn't he? Yes. So wouldn't it make sense if he was, she's like, you know, known for writing about psychology of crime. It's plausible that he got it almost when he was trying to woo her to be like, I'm into stuff that you're into. Maybe. Yeah, it's possible. Okay. So we're into the, this is now the final, the final theory that we're coming to with Mr. Chatterwick. Oh God. Do you, this, this one kind of wasn't necessarily for you to guess, I guess, who you think the poisoner is but if you want to take a guess this is the time to do it i feel like i'm so conflicted now <laughs> i'm going i'm looking through all my notes yeah, yeah take their, your time uh, i don't know if it'll seem out of left field but i'm still slightly suspicious of sir charles's daughter okay only because she would have access probably to eustace's typewriter if mm-hmm. she heard wind of this affair and thought that they that Mrs. Bendix was going to divorce her husband and they were going to get married. She was getting rid of like a rival lover. I don't know. I just, I haven't written her off yet between it's either between Eustace and her, I think. Okay. Okay. I like it. So the next night, Mr. Chitterwork nervously sums up everyone else's stories theories. Like he's kind of like giving the, the high points of all of them because he's kind of saying it could on going last like this is just we've we've been here for six nights let's just quickly summarize and then he says that Miss Dammers had basically no real facts except for the typewriter letter like that's all she had everything else was psychology and he's kind of saying if I can disprove that then does she really have a case to stand on I mean he's not wrong the typewriter thing is the strongest like actual hard evidence right so he goes on to say that it is pretty easy to do away with the typewriter if you assume not what miss dammers was saying where she was saying it's a second-rate criminal instead of assuming a second-rate criminal you assume what roger had assumed which is that they were a very intelligent criminal who had planned for everything so they're trying to frame eustace if they're very exactly if they're a very intelligent criminal they would be trying to frame Eustace and that typewriter was rigged. That was a gotcha. setup, setup job. And so this, this blows away the rest of the circle. Cause they're all going like, what's Chitterwick going to say? And then he brings this out at the very beginning and he's got their attention immediately because they're all like, yeah, you're right. Like they still think it's Miss Dammers is right at this point, but Chitterwick is like making a good point. So he says that everyone's theories had had some bits of truth in them and that he had just kind of sorted through it all and that's how he had come up with the real truth. So he is going to put forward a solution. So first, Sir Charles had found the erasure on the note paper, that there had it had been a previously used piece of note paper. So that was smart. And he also pointed out that the criminal would need to secure an alibi, that that would be important. And he agrees that the his criminal also has an alibi that he's going to have to disprove. Okay. 
He then says that Mrs. Fielder Fleming um, had shown that Sir Eustace only wanted to marry Miss Wildman for her money, not because he was infatuated with her. Right. And he says that had it had Sir Eustace been infatuated with Miss Wildman, very likely Miss Wildman would have died. She would have been the murdered victim. So he's agreeing at this point that Mrs. Bendix was the intended victim. Okay. Okay. So he's saying, okay, so that's important. Mrs. Fielder Fleming, thank you very much. Sir Charles is agog at this point for his daughter. Then he's kind of saying that most of Bradley's points were insightful and a lot of them had been correct, that they were necessary, but it's all in the case of like, just like the typewriter could be borrowed, like everything could be placed as evidence. Like it's important, they are all important, but more so in the fact of who could have access to them, not actually who owned them. That's more important. Mr. Bradley had also seen that it was a woman's crime and Chitterick agrees with that. Definitely a woman's crime. It's his, his suspect is also a woman. Okay. Then Roger had been the first to realize that it was the intended victim who had died. Mrs. Bendix. He was the first to point that out and that he had actually, he thinks that the crime was actually aimed at both Sir Eustace and Mrs. Bendix. So it affected Mrs. Bendix. It had missed Sir Eustace. And that was unfortunate. Um, so he's saying that Roger thought it was a jealous husband. Chitterwick is saying, no, it's a jealous rival. Okay. Yes. So it was intended for both Eustace and Mrs. Bendix is what he's saying. Yes. So then Miss Dammers had pointed out the affair. She had brought up this affair connecting Miss Mrs. Bendix and Sir Eustace, which was... Chitterwick said, like, that's what clinched it for him. Like, that's what made him realize the truth was um, this affair going on between Mrs. Bendix and Sir Eustace. And that's how he had pieced together how everything had worked out. So the only thing he says for Miss Bendix is she is making all these psychological claims. He disagrees. He thinks that Sir Eustace was actually more infatuated with Mrs. Bendix than she was with him. That he was super in love with her. And that was, again, a very important point to this whole thing is that he actually was in love with her. Okay. So it wasn't, it was, it was more than anyone was putting kind of weight to at the time. Okay. Um, is this, is any of that swaying you at all in any direction? Um, well, I mean, if you we're saying that the murderer is a lady who is also a romantic rival of Mrs. Bendix, then it doesn't, there's a ton of people still, but that does, Charles's daughter is still in the running then. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, but there's a lot of people that he's having affairs with. So we're not sure. Okay. Not sure. So I know at this point I have like eight pages left of the book, but I didn't take notes on it because I ran out of time. Nice. Um, but I want to get this right. So I just want to refresh my memory on where we are. Yeah, go ahead. Another important point that uh, Mr. Chudowick points out is that Sir Eustace was a customer of Webster's. That's where he bought his paper. And so he's saying that's how Mason's Chocolates was chosen because it had to be a company where Sir Eustace bought his notepaper and Mason's bought their notepaper because there was someone was trying to create a connection there. Right. An overlap. Yes. Okay. So then he starts to like paint his picture of who, who this person is. So he's saying they were, they were, he thinks that they were a, um, a one, one of the secret lovers that no one had really realized had actually been lovers and had been going on for a while. And there was kind of this understanding that they would remain a like mistress. But as soon as Sir Eustace divorced his wife, they would become the like official partner. Like they could get married, basically. 
Okay. But then, uh, and this had been kind of like the expectation, and the the mistress knew that Sir Eustace was going to have these other affairs with other women, and that was fine as long as it was like impersonal and like she remained the the official mistress, like the okay. one he actually loved. Right. But the fact that Eustace actually loved Mrs. Bendix was a problem. That's exactly where it went wrong. So what had happened was Sir Eustace had kind of said like he didn't have money. So that's why he had to marry. He was, was going to try and marry Miss Wildman. And uh, the mistress was okay with this because it it wasn't for love. It was just for money. And so it was going to you know throw a hurdle in things. But um, she was a new aged woman. So it's not going to matter too much. Uh, but yeah, with Mrs. Bendix, where he was actually in love with her, that threw a, sh- and he fell out. Of, it wasn't just that, he fell out of love with this mistress. Gotcha. And that was not going to stand Nikki. This person was not okay with that. Uh, this this person, the, it, as he's kind of said before, would have had access to Sir Eustace's typewriter, would have been had access to to plant anything needed in his room. They would have been able to impersonate the Miss Vera's voice, the actress's voice, to get Bendix to the Rainbow Club for the appointed time. So, so at this point, Mr. Chidowick's like pretty nervous, and he's kind of saying he's gotten to the point where he has to clear up the alibi. It's time to approve the alibi, and so he's kind of saying that he thinks it was almost an afterthought, um, owing to a piece of luck. And so he's saying he thinks that the person had realized how convenient it would be if they could get someone else to mail the parcel for them while they were away in another country. Right. And this person, he's he's figured out who it is, um, was very infrequently in London, would only be there for a couple of days, uh, and then would go off traveling around the world. Um, wasn't frequent, wouldn't ne- normally read the news, and even if they did, were the type of person that wouldn't attach much weight to anything. So wouldn't realize that the package they had mailed was the chocolate parcel. Okay. So this person went to Africa and has then traveled to South America and probably is there, but they, he, like, you know, it's 1929. Haven't figured, can't call her up necessarily. Right. International news. Yeah. So this person, her name was Jane Harding. She had stayed at for two nights at the Savoy Hotel, which is near where the, apparently where the parcel was mailed. And she had come from Paris where she had been staying for a week. Okay. So the criminal would have known about this trip to London and so hurried to Paris in order to link up with with Jane Harding to get her to send this package. So it's the maid. So at this point, Chitterick really doesn't want to say who this is. And he's kind of like looking to Roger for help. And at this point, Alicia Dammer stands up and she says, well, I'm afraid I have an appointment. Uh, if you'll excuse me. And she gets up to go. And then she turns around at the door and says she's she's very sorry that she won't hear the rest of Mr. Chitterick's case. But really, she doesn't think he'll be able to prove it anyways. Okay. And then Mr. Chitterick says that she's perfectly right. He's he's afraid he won't, has no, has, he he's sure it's this person, but uh, he, he won't be able to prove it in the slightest. And then everyone kind of sits there staring at what's going on around them. And they go, you can't mean that. It's. Oh, does he think it's? The... No one. No one says the name ever. But oh, that's they how go. The book ends. That's how the book ends, and they go. Well, what do we need to do now? And no one knows how to enlighten him. So I've done not a great job of explaining this all wow. with all the facts. But Nikki, you're led to believe that it's Miss Dammers with no evidence, though. Right. 
Okay, so now let's talk about that and how that could have happened. Because I, again, I think I blundered the ending there. No, it's all good. What? That's spicy. Okay. Okay, so the deal is, let me walk through this in a more clear-headed way. Miss Dammers had been Sir Eustace's lover at one point, and they had played it off really well as this, like, pulling, you know, stringing along behavior. And then she had written this super damning book that made it look like they had never been together. Right. But really, they had just decided that it was time to take their relationship into secret. Gotcha. And so they had continued in secret with this expectation that Miss Dammers was going to marry Eustace. Eustace, eventually. So when she had found out, when she had caught wind of what was going on with Mrs. Bendix and found out that this was like, you know, real, the real deal, not just these like little affairs, she got real pissed because, you know, this is her, her man, basically. And so she decides that she wants, she wants Mrs. Bendix dead. And she either wants Eustace dead as well, or she wants him blamed for the crime. Wow. Or both. Okay. Or she wants both. She wants him dead and blamed for the murder-suicide. His suicide, Mrs. Bendix's murder. So she she has, of course, all the knowledge of criminology and and chemistry or whatever, chemical knowledge. She's a smart cookie. And so she whips up these chocolates. She is, of course, ascertained that the Mason's notepaper that Sir Eustace shops there, she takes the piece of notepaper. So that was, in fact, the notepaper. She uses Sir Eustace's typewriter, probably his pen. Uh, she writes up this thing. She then realizes that her friend is coming to London soon. And so she heads off to Paris and hands off the package and stays in Paris. So she has this beautiful alibi with Lady Penafather. This person mails the package. And the only thing that does not go according to plan is she does not account for that Mrs. Bendix and Sir Eustace would cancel their lunch plans. Right. So, so unfortunately, what she had been expecting is that Sir Eustace would receive these chocolates. Mr. Bendix would be at the Rainbow Club to see him receive the chocolates. It would be fresh in his mind that Sir Eustace has received these chocolates if it ever came up in the future. Sir Eustace and the chocolates would be tied together. Sir Eustace, of course, would bring the chocolates to his lunch date with Mrs. Bendix. She'd eat the chocolates. He'd probably eat some chocolates. Do they both die? Hopefully, according to Miss Dammers. Right. Um, and then they're both exposed as terrible people. I guess she doesn't care about Mr. Bendix at all. And she gets her revenge. Brutal. Wow. What do you think, Nikki? I mean, she was the one that presented the evidence that it was uh sir eustace's typewriter like it was like confirmed that his typewriter had written the note right right so mr chitterwick does point out at one point he's like this person really couldn't leave good enough alone like they couldn't just get the murder in that they wanted they had to try and ascertain that someone else was placed with the blame right and if they hadn't done so would mr chitterwick have ever figured it out probably not right so yeah, she just had because if she hadn't said anything, who would know that Mr. Be- Mrs. Bendix and Sir Eustace were having an affair? That's true. She's the one that also brought that up. Yeah, yeah. She brought up a lot of those little things. Dun dun dun. That's gonna make the next uh, crime circle really awkward. Yeah. <laughs> so I, this is again. I don't know if this is a series of, in any way. So I'm not sure if you can find out what happens next. <laughs> Or this is just where it ends. Or if she just disappears. Yeah, I hope so. I hope she just goes off into the night and no one sees her again. Yeah, that feels dramatic and right. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I, 
when I started to talk about that, like evil villains, I was like, oh my god, I'm tying Miss Stammers to be an evil villain. Then I was like, no, there's not. It's it's not one of those ones where it's. I don't know if you could guess. Do you know? Yeah. Maybe if you were reading it at the very end, I feel like you would have guessed because it's like set up for you to like lead you to all these points. Right. But throughout, I don't know. I don't know. I thought it was Mr. Bendix. (laughs) That was my guess. It's definitely an interesting format to have them all like discuss their theory. Yeah. I like that. I liked this book a lot too. I was pleasantly surprised because I was reading it with like the, ugh, it's not an Agatha Christie. Right. It can't be good. I yeah, I'm snob. Oh, super snob. That's me. <laughs> and then I was like, actually, I would totally read another Anthony Berkeley Berkeley book if I was presented the opportunity. Yeah, maybe find out which characters are regulars and which ones yeah. aren't. <laughs> the this I got lucky and found this in a used bookstore. I don't. I will continue to look for a, more of this author, but. I probably won't buy any of them new. And I have, I have too many books to like take them out from the library. So yeah, if you, I will say listeners, if you really like this author and this, this format and this, I don't know, you want to find out if Roger is a recurring character, um, write in and tell me, and then maybe I'll sign out a book from the library. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Nikki. Any final thoughts? No, thanks for having me. That was really fun. I'm glad you liked it. I liked this story too. Yeah, I feel I'm like glad to tell it. Crime circles should make a comeback. Like we should have <laughs> those again, where we just invite detectives oh my into gosh. our minds of active investigations and get them to tell us details about it. Nikki, I was about to say that's genius, and then I realized that there's like a gajillion podcasts that do that already. I'm sure, but like, what's the fun unless you're like all in costume together? You know. <laughs> okay, to the tea party next week. I'll bring a real crime story. There you go. If I can think of one. I'm, I, I'll find one. I'll find one. <laughs> I'll try and find a good one. Then we can all talk about it. Nice. Okay. And then I'm going to start an offshoot podcast of my own true crime. <laughs> true crime. Crime circle. Tuesday night crime circle. <laughs> yeah. I think we need a new night. Tuesday okay. night mystery club. Maybe Wednesday night crime circle. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> you can't overbook. You can't no, overbook. No, no, no. Maybe Thursday night. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's all. So if you would like to contact the show, you can do so at the email, which is Tuesday Night Mystery Club at gmail.com. I have, I would say it used to be an excellent Instagram. I've kind of fallen off the, the wagon on no, it's posting. Still good. It's still good. Well, there's a lot of backlog. Go watch all my reels on Instagram. So that's Tuesday Night Mystery Club on Instagram. Um, I also will post show updates when new episodes come out. So if you want a reminder, that's a good place to go. And if you'd like to support the show further, you can do so on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Tuesday Night Mystery Club. I would like to thank all our current patrons, starting with the Inspector Gamash level, we have Shelley Tsao. And then at the Miss Jean Marple level, we have Michael Borello, Debbie Kravis, Barb McLean, Emily Shilton, Alex Young Davies, Stuart, Fal- Stuart Falls, and Ned Wright. Thank you all to all my Patreons for supporting the show. And just to everyone listening at home. I'm glad to have you. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, this is episode 52. So you've got a big back catalog to go back and listen to anywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, That's all. Anything else, Nikki? Uh, I hope that I did well enough to keep my PI license. (laughs) Comment below if you guys should keep it. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, please write in, write in and let us know if you think Mickey should keep her PI license. <laughs> we'll, we'll read the best responses on the show if there are any. Did I earn it? <laughs> yeah. All right. Happy Tuesday, everyone. Good night.